If you are new with us here today, I can assure you there is usually a pulpit here. And in our evening services, we have been working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So I would invite you to come next Sunday where we'll pick up in that series, Lord willing. We'd love to have you back with us. This evening, I've taken the opportunity to do something a little bit different. Uh, as many of you know, the Shepherds Conference was held this week over at Grace Church, which means, which means a lot of folks were in town, and I invited a friend of mine to come and join us this evening uh, to talk about the value of reading in the Christian life. So I want to do a little bit of a Q&A here this evening, and uh, as we get started, I just ask you to welcome John Rawlinson as he comes to join me. John, thank you for being with us. Um, John and I met, we were just thinking this through this afternoon, some years ago now. Uh, it was actually at a Shepherds Conference, and um, at the time, my job, I was a, a lowly seminary student, and uh, to pay the bills, I was John MacArthur's assistant, and uh, there was a lunch happening in his office with the guys from Banner of Truth, and I was sat outside very much during that week of the year as the gatekeeper, because as you can imagine, there are about 5,000 men that suggest they all need an appointment with Pastor John, and my job was to say no. And so I was sat outside and doing some, no, you don't need an appointment, um, doing some emails. And then at one point, John pops his head out and says, come in, come in. So I walked in, and he kind of, as this, this kind of piece of evidence, he said, here's our, here's our Brit, here's our token Brit. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the banner of guys was just kind of looking at me, and, and it came up that I was in the submarine service, and we joked a little bit about that, and, and that was when we first met, and that was the sum total of it. Uh, but we've kept in touch over the years, and whenever John is in town, I make a point of stopping by the banner uh, stall at the conference and saying hi to these guys, and I value their ministry so, so highly. Uh, if you don't know Banner of Truth as a publishing company, they're a wonderful, wonderful group of men that are so ministry-oriented um, that I'm, I'm truly thankful for them. And we're going to get into that a little bit this evening. Uh, but before we do, John, I'd love for our people to get to know you a little bit. So perhaps you could start by just sharing with us um, your personal testimony, how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Um, just to say, I really appreciate being here tonight. It's a joy to have been with you this morning as well. So it's nice to see a whole day with the church, and I've really enjoyed being with you today. So thank you for having me. Um, so my personal testimony, I was raised in a Christian family. Uh, my father was a minister, so I was a, a child of the manse. And... Uh, I think growing up in that environment, I was taught the scriptures from a very early age. I went to Sunday school. Uh, my parents read the scriptures to us at home, and we prayed and so on. So there's a sense in which, from a very early age, I knew the truths of the Bible. But the issue with that was that I might have known the truths of the Bible, but they were head knowledge. And I needed to come to a point where they became heart knowledge. And that point came when I was around about 15, 16 years old, uh, that I believe that I was converted. But I then had a real problem. Uh, now, I know that Paul has been preaching, and your overall theme on this has been assurance, has it not? 
So that's a, a different project. That, okay. That, yeah. We were talking about this afternoon. Yes, we Sorry, were. I thought this was something you were preaching right now. But anyway, no. <laughs> so assurance. And, and for me, assurance was a huge, huge issue. Uh, there I was, 16 years old or thereabouts, going to school every day, uh, believing I was a Christian, uh, but living in an environment where I was surrounded by others who were definitely not Christians. Uh, I was a rugby player at school. Uh, that meant that twice a week we were playing rugby against other schools, and sometimes they were away games, so you were traveling on the coach. Uh, and all the things that went on that surrounded that as a 16, 17-year-old and, and I would question myself. There were times when I did things that I would say to myself, you know, if you're a Christian, you wouldn't have said that. You wouldn't have done that. Uh, you wouldn't have thought that. And assurance was a huge problem to me. The first link, in a sense, you're going to hear the banner quite a bit tonight, but the banner was very influential in my life uh, and as a Christian in my life. And the point at which... I gained true assurance was during a Banner of Truth youth conference. And there was a gentleman who was preaching, and I can still remember it today. And his subject for his three addresses he gave at that conference was, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? And I listened to those, and I then had a conversation one morning over breakfast with a gentleman called Ian Murray that I know some of you will have heard of and perhaps have read some of his books and so on. And by the end of that conference, I came away and I said, I know that I'm a Christian. There's no issue here with assurance anymore. I know I'm a Christian. I know that I'm not perfect. But I also know that Christians aren't perfect. That there are times when we do things that we wish we didn't do. There are times when we think things that we wish we didn't think. We, we are not perfect in this life. But I knew that I was a sinner. I knew I'd repented of my sins. I knew that Christ had died for my sins. I knew that Christ had risen again. And that because he had risen again, we can have a hope of eternal life. So at the age of 18, um, I had an assurance of salvation. Maybe the first plug of many banner books this evening, Heaven on Earth was a wonderful book that helped me understand what assurance is. But I think even more than that, how precious a gift it is. Um, assurance is, I often think, one of the most complex doctrines in the Christian life. And one of the things that, that makes it difficult to understand is that it is not promised anywhere in Scripture that a Christian will be assured of their salvation. Uh, it can come and go within the Christian life. But the title of the book, Heaven on Earth, is the author's description of what it means to be assured. You have a, a taste of heaven because you, not only is it true that you're saved, but you know that you are saved. And so it's just a, a wonderfully uh, precious doctrine. Um, John, so from there, how did you come to work for Banner of Truth? I asked John this question this afternoon after, uh, over lunch, and he said, there's a long version and a short version. <laughs> over lunch, I actually heard the long version. Maybe you could give us the middle version. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, so um, I went to university, trained as an engineer, um, so I have a shared background too with Paul in engineering. Um, and during my working life after university, I ended up working in computer software and I ended up running a company that made computer software. And for various reasons, we sold that business. That business was sold to an American corporation. 
And as part of that transaction that took place, I was part of the deal, so to speak, so I had to stay for a period of time. But I didn't feel that that was what I wanted to do forever. It's very difficult to sell a business and carry on working in it after you've sold it. Anybody who's done that will perhaps appreciate that. And so I was contemplating the future. What should I do? And in many ways, I got to a position in life. I was the chief executive of a company uh, where my motivation for work was perhaps different to what it had been when I'd started off in work. When I first started in work, I needed to go to work because I needed to buy food. I needed to pay the mortgage. I got married. We had kids. had to put food on the table. But I was in a position where I was earning sufficient that I didn't need to worry about those things. And what was I doing? I, I was creating shareholder value for people. That was my job. And so I happened to be talking to my father and uh, saying to him, I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing in six months' time. I'd been tied in the sale. I had to work for six months for the new owners. But I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do in the future. And it was actually my father who said, have you seen the Banner of Truth magazine this month? And I said, well, no, I haven't, as it happens. He said, well, while you're here, here's my copy. Have a quick look here and look at this bit. And he showed me an advert in that magazine for the general manager of the Banner of Truth. And he said to me, you might want to think about that. And so I did, and I talked about it with my wife, and we prayed about it, and we talked about it with our church elders. And I felt that this was an opportunity to see where God would have us be and to test God's leading. So I applied for that job because the Banner of Truth had been very influential in my life. It wasn't just the, what I've already mentioned about assurance, but there are other things too. My father was a minister. He'd been very influenced by Banner books in the 60s uh, and on into the 70s. Um, my, my life in many ways had been entwined through with Banner. And I felt this would be an opportunity to give something back to the organization that I personally, and not just me, but my family, had benefited so much from for many years. And so I applied for the job, and so to speak, the rest is history. That was 1998 that I applied. I started in 1999, so this year I have been with the Trust for 23 years. And for those that don't know, can you explain what is Banner of Truth? Well, Banner of Truth started off uh, in 1955. Uh, we can trace the sort of history back to 1955, and it started off with a magazine. And when the first magazine was produced, there wasn't actually any knowledge of whether there would be a second magazine. Uh, and there was. It came eventually, and so things went on with the magazine. About two years later, at the time when the magazine first arrived, Ian Murray was in Oxford. By the time two years had gone by, he was now in London, and he was at Westminster Chapel as an assistant to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm sure many of you will, have know, will know of him. Um, and Ian was asked to do some lectures, um, and they were church history lectures. And during the course of those lectures, he kept mentioning people from the past, and he kept mentioning books that he'd read and was referencing books of people from days gone by. And there was a gentleman who was listening to these uh, messages who approached Ian later and said, well, I'd like to read that book. How can I get that book? And the answer to that was, well, the only way to get that book is to hunt the second-hand bookstores because that's the only way you can find this book. And the gentleman said, well, you know, that's not good enough. Um, we need to be able to get these books. 
So we need to have printed editions of these books now. Now, he was a businessman. His name was Jack Cullum. He was quite a wealthy businessman. And with him and with Ian and with encouragement from Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones and one or two others, the Banner of Truth was started. And the intention was to publish books, to publish things that had gone out of print, that had been long forgotten about in many cases, and to bring back to life some of the uh, old authors. And that's really how the banner started. So the work of the banner started off with a magazine. Now, as I say, when we first, the first edition of that, there was no guarantee there were going to be more. Well, that, that carries on today. So we still produce a monthly magazine. Uh, and we started off then, back then, doing books. The work developed. So in the early 60s, we uh, started a minister's conference. And that was started in the UK. Uh, and it was specifically directed at men in the ministry. Uh, it was a period of time in the history of Britain where there were men who perhaps didn't even know each other. Uh, and it was an opportunity to gather people from all corners of Britain, from different denominations, to get people out from their denominations, to meet together, uh, to come under the preaching of God's word and to have fellowship together. So that was the early 60s. Uh, we then started a youth conference. I already mentioned my experiences at the youth conference. It's perhaps, in some ways, it's one of the most joyous things we do is the youth conference. We still do it today. I get to go. Wow. Um, I'm not young anymore, as you might know. Uh, but I get to go, and, and it's... It's tremendous. It's really encouraging to be amongst a group of young people who are serious about the Word of God and are serious about Christian living. Uh, I'll just give you a quick story. A couple of years ago, the conference, there was another conference on at the same time in the centre that we use. Um, they were a group of um, people doing acting, some kind of a course on acting. And on the Sunday night, two ladies came to speak to me who'd been on this other course and they said, we would just like to know a bit more about what this group is that you have here because when we arrived on Friday and we saw all these young people coming in, our hearts sank because we thought, what on earth are we going to be subjected to over this weekend? A bunch of young people who range typically from about 16, 17 through to mid-20s. And I think what they were expecting was rowdiness. I think they were expecting possibly drunkenness and so on. And what they observed was something completely different. And what they observed was young people who in the dining area were being polite to the staff. And what they observed was young people who were being polite to them. And what they observed was young people who were gathering in a room and they could hear singing. And then there was silence. And well, what's going on? And so we had a, a tremendous opportunity to explain to them what we were doing, explain the gospel, and explain that this was the, these kids were like this because they're Christians, and it makes a difference. So, and that's been a, a witness, really, uh, of the, the Young People's Conference. It's been tremendous. It was great when I was a young person, and it's great to be able to experience it still as an older person. So that's the Youth Conference. We started a, a minister's conference in the U.S. as well, so we now run an East and a West Coast conference in the States too. There's another part of what we do, which is a big part of what we do, and it's an important part of what we do. 
So most people know of us as a book publisher. And we do publish books, and we publish books from older authors, uh, and we also publish books from modern-day authors. I was just saying to Paul earlier that it's a whole lot easier to work with the dead ones than it is to work with the live ones. But that's what we're known for, publishing books. But we also have an activity that's called the Book Fund. And this started back in 1960. Um, if people are familiar with the story of Spurgeon, I'm sure many of you are. You may be slightly less familiar with the story of Spurgeon's wife. But Spurgeon's wife started a thing that she called the Pastor's Book Fund to help poor pastors to get books. And one of our members of staff was reading about this and approached the Board of Trustees and said, you know what, that's a great idea. We should do that. And so around about 1960-61, the Banner of Truth Book Fund came into being. And it still operates today. And through the book fund, we're able to supply books to all sorts of different places all around the world. Uh, it might be to missionaries. It might be to individual Christians in poor parts of the world. It might be to seminaries in different parts of the world. So just recently, for instance, we've shipped a lot of books into Egypt to equip libraries in three seminaries in Egypt. And you have to be wise when you do that because, you know, sending lots and lots of books into a place like Egypt might raise questions. So our warehouse has been sending smaller packages. They've been waiting two weeks and then they send another one and they wait another few weeks and then they send another one. Uh, and we can thank God that so far everything has got through. Um, and that's been a tremendous blessing over the years to be involved in that work. And, and God has blessed the work of the book fund. Um, I would have to say that we've had Lots and lots of requests. We do get lots and lots of requests for us to donate books to people or supply books very cheaply to people. But the time I've been at the Banner of Truth, we have never, ever had a situation where somebody has made a request that we've had to turn down because of lack of funds. That's never happened. And my predecessor was at the Banner for 20-odd years, and I remember him, when I first started, telling me exactly the same thing. He said, we've never had to turn down a book fund request because of lack of funds. And I praise God for that because the book fund has been hugely used. Um, I could tell you the story about the gentleman. I, I told Paul this earlier. Um, a young man I met who was in seminary, and uh, we were introducing one another around a table at lunchtime. And uh, the gentleman, when I said who I was, sort of jumped in his seat somewhat. And I thought, that's a bit strange. Uh, and so I spoke to him afterwards and said, you know, something triggered with you when I said who I was. So, you know, I don't think I know you. So what was it? And he said, well, you changed my life. Well, of course, it wasn't me who changed his life. It was God and books that changed his life. He'd been a missionary in Eastern Europe. He'd been with an organization there. Uh, and he'd heard that the Banner of Truth had this thing called a book fund. So he applied to us through the book fund. And we sent him some books. And over the period of time receiving books, communicating with me, communicating with my staff, his, the his theology had changed. Uh, and he had come to a position where he saw things very differently. His, his view of scripture had changed. The doctrines of grace became very precious to him. The problem was that wasn't where his organization stood. And, and when home base heard about this change in this man, they pulled him off the mission field. And they fired him. 
He said, you lost me my job. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And he was training for the ministry. Um, and that's what books can do. Books can change people. And it's one of the reasons why I'm excited about what we do. Still excited about what we do, although I'm getting gray-haired in the job. Um, books can change people. Um, but I'll just give you another example. We had a, an occasion at a, a conference, and a gentleman walked past our booth, stopped, looked at a book that I had displayed, and he looked at me and said, that book changed our church. And I said, well, you need to sit down here then and tell me about it. And so he sat down, and it was a little book, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' Authority, um, very small book. And he told me that he had been struggling to sleep one night. And so he went down to his study, and he said, I thought perhaps I'll get a drink from the fridge, I'll sit in the study, and I'll read something. And he looked at his bookshelves, and he saw this little book there, he thought, I've never read that. Uh, I'll read that, and that'll help me get to sleep. And he said to me, what a mistake that was. He said, sleep, I couldn't sleep. He said, I read that, and I realized so much of what we taught as a church was just wrong. And he said, I had a real struggle with it. Um, and over a period of time, he said, I came to the position where I felt that it would be wrong for me to stay in the church. I, I could no longer, uh, in good conscience, minister in this congregation because the church didn't believe what I now believe. And so he called his church officers together because he said, I don't want to leave without telling them why. So he called his church officers together, had a meeting, and he said, I want to explain something to you. My views have changed, and I no longer agree with the doctrinal position of this church. And he told me, he went on to explain why his views had changed, and what had changed, and what he now believed the scriptures taught. And he got to the end of it, and he said, so now I feel that in good conscience all I can do is resign. I think I have to resign as your pastor. And he said there was a silence. And then he said there was an elderly gentleman at the other end of the room who said, well, pastor, if I could just say, I've been kind of thinking a bit like that for a little while now myself. He said, I would like to suggest that you stay here and you teach us. And he said, around the whole room, everybody to a man said, yes, we agree with that. We think this is right to do. And he stayed the church reform. Mm, wow. The, um, <laughs> the ministry of, of Banner is, is extensive, as you can tell from what John was sharing there. Uh, an anecdote that, that I want you to share just very briefly. It was very influential, the youth conferences in John's life, but also in your children's lives. How so? Yeah, well, you can imagine there are young people gathering together. Um, we, don't, we don't operate a reformed dating agency, but uh, when young people gather together, sometimes things happen. Um, so I, I have two children who have found wives at the youth conference. Um, so young ladies who they met. Uh, in one particular instance, um, my youngest son, uh, he met a young lady, and it became obvious uh, over a few weeks after the conference that something was going on because there was some communication taking place with this young lady. And then it became apparent that something really was happening. And I had to say to him, do you realize where she lives? She lives in Kent. Now, that will mean something to you. Perhaps won't mean a lot to many others here. So we live in Scotland. Uh, Kent is just about as far south as you can go in Britain without falling into the English Channel. 
I said, do you realize how far away she is? Could you not have found somebody closer? But anyway, they, they were seeing each other and they got married last September. Um, so we had a, a wonderful Scottish wedding, a kilted wedding. Um, there's at least one person here who knows that I'm not Scottish um, because he is Scottish and he knows I don't speak with a Scottish accent, but he would probably be amused to know that I actually had to wear a kilt as well. For oh, you did? I did. Wow. <laughs> now, um, just to, to follow on from what John's saying about the, the fund, the pastor's fund, what do you, yeah, book fund. Um, the reason I said at the beginning of the evening that I have such a deep, deep appreciation for Banner is because my perhaps most persistent experience of them is as a publishing organization that truly has a, a ministry-centered, focused philosophy. You, you learn there are different types of Christian publishers, and some are more oriented towards profit margins than others, and Banner is not that kind of publishing company. And the number of times I've known of guys to stop by the Banner table at the Shepherds Conference or somewhere else, and uh, just one guy in particular I can think of, very, very poor student and just showed up, new believer, and he just got talking to the Banner rep and expressed his deep desire to read good material. So the Banner rep just grabbed a box and said, come with me. He walked him around the Banner table and grabbed just about a copy of every single book they had, put it in the box, and said, take these. Zero charge. And that, is, that in my mind, just characterizes the Banner of Truth ministry. That's how I think of them. So I'm so, so thankful for their ministry and their understanding of, of the value of reading. Now, uh, I, I do think of, of Banner in terms of the books, and, and one thing that, that sticks out to me is that uh, you publish so many old books. Can you tell us a little bit of the philosophy of Banner, especially as it relates to recovering old books? Sure. So our sort of philosophy, really, of publishing is that um, we seek to put in print the things that we believe are beneficial for today, written in the past, but timeless. And, you know, if you look back in church history, there are periods of church history where I think we would have to say God has been particularly at work. And quite often in those periods of church history, you find that literature output increases. And the kind of literature that is being written, again, is in a sense of a different nature, a different quality almost to some other times. And you find there are men who are writing things, and as you read them, you realize these people are utterly steeped in the Scriptures. They know their Bibles. They know what it means to live a Christian life based on the Scriptures. There are men who went through tremendous persecutions. Uh, and you know, if you look at particularly the, the sort of Puritan period in Britain, the persecution that took place there was, was tremendous. Uh, and so that there are men who are writing from not just the knowledge of the Scriptures, not just the knowledge of... Uh, living a Christian life, but the knowledge of living a Christian life in times of adversity. And the quality, therefore, of some of what they write is something which I think many modern writers today just cannot, cannot match. 
So we're looking to, to bring to today the things that we believe are the best of days gone by. But that timelessness is what we're really looking for. So when we're, write, when we're uh, publishing modern day writers, we apply a similar kind of filter to that as well. So what we're looking for is books that are not just there for today, but there for tomorrow too. But more than that, there for 10 years, there for 20 years, there for 100 years. You know, we publish things that were first published in the 1700s. And I'd like to think that some of the things we publish today from living authors will still be around in another 300 years because they're timeless, because they're biblically based. They're dealing with the truths of Scripture. Uh, they're not just talking about what might be today's issue in society, which might not be the same issue in a month's time. It might be something completely different. But they're dealing in biblical truths, biblical principles. Uh, and that's the, the sort of filter that we seek to apply to things that we do. And, and it affects what we produce as well, not just in the, in the sense of what books we publish, but how we publish. So we believe that where possible, you should make a quality book. Uh, and so our hardbacks in particular, um, they're going to last for a long time. You know, books that we're selling today are going to certainly outlast me. Um, and probably outlast my children too, because they're made in such a way that they will have longevity in the physical product as well as having longevity in the content. So there's a, an influence there. And again, it, it to some extent affects how we view books. So I, for instance, would never dream of throwing a book around a room. You know, the, the book has too much inherent quality to be just throwing it around. Um, that might sound silly, but I, I do think that if you have a book that has good content, you want to take care of that book. Um, it's valuable to you. Um, put it in the context of some of what we do with the book fund. So I, I don't know you guys or most of you folks anyway, but I have a lot of books at home. Um, my wife tells me I have too many books, but I have a lot of books at home. And yet some of the people we deal with in the book fund would only have what we send them. They may have just a handful of books, and those books are treasures, they're like gold, they're like diamonds, they're, they're fine treasures. And they wouldn't be throwing them around because they treasure what they've got. Uh, and I think the same too um, of my own books, that I, I believe that they're treasures that I read, I learn from, that teach me, uh, and they're very precious to me. Mm -hmm. So John, tell us what would be some of your personal favorite Banner of Truth titles? This is a really difficult question to answer. Um, I have some, a couple of books which I have emotional attachments to. So the very first banner book that I ever owned, uh, I was around about 12, 13 years old, uh, was volume one of Spurgeon's autobiography. There are two volumes. I got it uh, in a little village near where we lived that used to run an annual um, an annual sort of preaching conference day. And I'd gone along with my father, and Spurgeon was a name that I heard frequently within our household. My grandmother used to read morning and evening, uh, every day. So he was a very familiar name, but I didn't really know a lot about him. And there on the book table was volume one. So I got volume one. 
the second banner book that I owned was, not surprisingly, volume two. I got that a year later at the same place. And so I have emotional attachments to those. But then again, as a young person, there were other books that, that were quite influential in my life. Uh, as a young person, I think, struggling with issues of assurance, struggling with issues of guidance. Sinclair Ferguson's little book, Discovering God's Will, was very helpful to me. But then if you move on a little bit in life, there are other books which I would say have become very precious to me. I'm a big fan of John Flavel, uh, and in particular, uh, his book, The Mystery of Providence, which I think... How I would have to say it did. It really did change my life. Um, I, I, you know, as, as I said earlier, I was raised in a Christian family, and you kind of think you know things, don't you? Um, and I sort of thought I, I sort of understood providence. And then I read Flavel on Providence, and I was like, I didn't understand it at all. This book has just absolutely opened my eyes. Um, so that that's a very precious book to me. Um, a couple of other pews and paperbacks that, that I found very helpful. Uh, so John Owen, The Glory of Christ and Communion with God, those two books in particular were very helpful to me. Um, and also Richard Sibbs, um, The Bruised Reed, uh, has been a comfort to me over the years. Then there are other things. Um, so th- there's a book which uh, I would suggest most of you don't read, but if there are any of you here who preach, then you must read. Uh, and it's a book called The Mysteries of Christianity. Uh, it's not an easy read. It's not a bedtime read. But for anybody who preaches, I think it's a must-read book, The Mysteries of Christianity. And that was very impactful for me when I read that. And then another title, uh, Jonathan Edwards. Well, two things of Edwards. Uh, one is The History of the Work of Redemption. And when I read that book, again, it was, uh, it was a tremendous Uh, influence on me just to read through and and basically what he does is he traces through the scriptures uh, he traces the title through the scriptures the history of the work of redemption and he starts at Genesis and he works through and shows how the whole of the story of the scriptures is about the culmination of Christ and Christ dying and Christ rising again and and he traces through scripture how you know that Satan tries to stop this happening Uh, And yet at the point where Satan thinks he's gained his greatest victory on the cross, he's actually the defeat. Uh, And it's just glorious. It's tremendous reading. Um, And Jonathan Edwards, as I'm sure many of you will know, uh, was based here in New England. When I say here, I mean the USA. And what you might not know is he claimed to be an Englishman. Um, So we we claim him. Um, But a lot of people in the States in recent years have seen a a bit of a um, revival in interest in Edwards uh, outside of the church. And he is considered to be one of America's greatest philosophers. I actually had an American lady tell me this on one occasion, and I had to explain to her that, no, you've got that wrong, I'm sorry. He was one of your greatest preachers and theologians. That's what he was. Philosophy, theology, yes. That was on a bus ride in Edinburgh. She sat down next to me as I was reading the book. So that book and then another thing of Edwards, which is actually an extract from um, Charity and Its Fruits, which is Heaven, a World of Love. Uh, And we actually produced that as a small little pocket Puritan edition. That is a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, And it's heartwarming, it's encouraging, and it paints a picture of heaven. Uh, And it's so encouraging.
So those are some of my personal favorites. <laughs> and I'm sure you could go on. Um, we were having this discussion this afternoon, and I had said how uh, Jonathan Edwards, the religious affections, had so greatly impacted me, and then John Owen's communion with God, similarly. And then another book that I shared with John earlier in the week that I had spoken to you about in a sermon one Sunday evening, more of a booklet, not really a book, is The Principled Life of Obedience. And I'd mentioned it, and um, I think April had gone looking for it and said, it's out of print, and you can only find it now $300 on Amazon. <laughs> and so I cornered John this week. I said, John, what is going on with that book? And he said, you said it'll be back in print. I still have the, the copy I had. I still don't know how it made its way into my hands, but as a new believer, I benefited greatly from that book. And you told me something about the author and his views of vegetarians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to talk about that? <laughs> yeah. The author is a gentleman called Al Martin, and Al Martin used to speak at the youth conference when I was a young person, so many, many years ago. And... Al is, um, he's a straight preacher. Uh, he doesn't mess about. He's very to the point and he's very straight. And he can be quite strong when he wants to be as well. And there was one particular youth conference I was telling Paul that I was sitting fairly near the front and his subject was uh, male-female relationships and roles and responsibilities and so on. And so he'd started off right back in Genesis and he was talking about creation and so on. And then he paused and he said, is there anybody in this room who's a vegetarian? And I was sitting near the front. I was dying to look round. But I was also shrinking down because I'm like, I know what's coming. And one or two brave people put their hands up and boy, did he let them have it. Um, you know, God has given us dominion over the animals. Um, so, yeah, that, that was an interesting moment. Sure. <laughs> Okay, so we've spoken a lot about the ministry of Banner, and I'd like to bridge now, more generally, more broadly, to speak about the value of reading in the Christian life. John, how would you talk to someone about the value of reading? Why is it important in the Christian life? Well, I think you can start off um, by a consideration of Christianity. And how do we know God? What do we know about God? How do we find out about God? And the answer to that is the scriptures. Uh, so God has seen fit to reveal himself to us, to us in particular ways. And one of the main ways of that revelation to us is the written word. And so I would contend that all Christians should be readers. And if they read nothing else, they ought to be reading the Bible. But I would also say that um, it is very difficult to grow as a Christian if all you read is the Bible. Just as we need people to preach the scriptures, why do we need that? Well, we need that because God uses preaching to convert people, to build his people up. And he uses preaching and teaching to help us to understand more about him and to understand more of the scriptures. But interestingly, any church service needs to be concentrated on 
the word, the Bible. And any point in time where a preacher is starting to preach things that are his word and not the word, you've got a problem. And that's when you get heresy coming in. That's when you get man-centeredness coming in. So our church service should be focused on the scriptures. And, and we learn from that. But we have men who have been gifted by God to preach and to teach. And that's why we have elders in churches. It's one of the roles of eldership. And there are also other resources that we can use. And it's interesting, you know, you don't hear it quite so much these days, I think. But when I was younger, certainly one of the things that you frequently used to hear was, let go, let God. It was a common thing you heard. And you have to say, what, what did that mean? You know, let go, let God. And it was a mindlessness is what it was. It was a switching off of the mind. But what does the Bible teach us? Well, what are we told is... You know, when Christ is, asked, Christ is asked about, you know, what's the greatest commandment? What's he say? Love the Lord thy God with what? Heart, soul, and mind. Okay? Don't switch off the mind. You don't let go and let God because you have to keep your mind engaged. What about Paul, Romans 12? You know, again, he talks about being renewed in our minds, doesn't he? And then you have other, other injunctions elsewhere um, in the New Testament. So things like 2 Peter, where we're told to grow in grace. Well, how do you grow in grace? Well, you don't switch off your mind if you want to grow in grace. Uh, we're warned in Jude about heresy creeping in and so on, and we're told to guard ourselves. Well, again, how do you do that? Well, again, it's very much a mind thing. That the Christian life is about our minds as much as it is about our hearts and our souls. And we have to guard our minds. Uh, it's a bit like um, your, your, your yard. Um, if you don't look after your yard, what happens? If you leave it alone, then the weeds grow, don't they? And our minds are exactly the same. What happens if we leave our minds alone? What happens if we just sit back and do nothing with our brains? Well, the weeds grow. And what are the weeds? Well, for a Christian, the weeds are sin, aren't they? Um, so we need to engage our minds in our Christian lives. Uh, and one way of doing that, and I think an important way to do that, is to read uh, and read widely. Um, yes, sure, read the scriptures. That has to be our priority. But read things that can help us to understand the scripture better. Read things that can help us in our Christian lives uh, to, to live to Christ's glory, to God's glory. Read things that are encouraging to us too. So, you know, for instance, reading biography can be tremendously helpful to see what happened in days gone by, see how God worked in people's lives can be very encouraging. So I believe strongly that Christians should be readers. Um, we, we live in a society where in many ways the written word is denigrated. We live for the spoken word. Um, you know, in our, in your homeland, in my country, when we get to an election, the parties create a thing they call a manifesto. And it's a written document. But whoever reads it? Nobody ever reads it. And why don't they read it? Well, they don't read it because they'd rather hear the politician tell you what his 
manifesto is. And oftentimes, when the politician's telling him what his manifesto is, it doesn't match his written manifesto either. And why is all that? Well, that's because we place the spoken word above the written word in the way that our society operates. We'd rather hear somebody say something than go and read something. And as Christians, we need to be countercultural. Um, we test the spoken word by the written word. And when anybody stands on this pulpit here and preaches to you, what do you do? You test what they're saying against the written word. That's your responsibility as a believer. And you need to do that. But you can only do that if you know the written word. So Christians need to have their minds engaged. Christians need to read. Uh, and I think that's the way that we can guard ourselves. It's the way that we can build ourselves up in the faith. And that's the way in which ultimately, as we build ourselves up in the faith, we can overflow our faith to others and we can then witness to others. It's difficult to witness to people if you know nothing. Um, so you need, to, you need to know what you believe. And part of knowing what you believe, I think, is reading. One thing that I'll often say to folks is that you should read the Bible with someone else. Always strive to be reading with someone, which doesn't have to mean that every time you open the Bible, there's a physical person next to you. There's obviously value in reading the Bible as part of a small group. There's especially value in reading the Bible in the context of a local church. I often just think about the fact that the New Testament letters were written to churches and not individuals, and that should be instructive for the way in which we think about reading these letters. One way that you can read with people is to have a book open beside you as you read the Bible. And this is what I want people to think through as they open up the Bible to study and have a quiet time. Consider having a, a book beside you that will help you to read. That person is not physically present with you, but in a sense, you're reading with them. You're allowing their writing to help you understand God's word. And, uh, and as John said, just consider the fact that God revealed himself through a book. In and of itself, that commends us to be readers. Now, with that being said, John, what advice would you give to somebody who is here tonight and says, I'm just not a reader? That's not me. Maybe I don't have the time. Maybe that's just not the way God's wired me. I just don't read. How would you encourage somebody to get started in the discipline of reading? Okay, well, I think the first thing I would say to somebody is, do you know, you may think you're not a reader, but you are. That's the first thing to say. And unless you cannot read, as in you're physically unable to open something and read it, you are a reader. You may watch films, your enjoyment of that film will be reduced if you can't read. Uh, you, maybe you don't think that's true, but just think about it. When you watch a film, what do you see? You, you don't just see the actors, you see the environment they're in. You might see a road sign, you might see uh, a store sign or something. And when you're watching that, you're reading. You, you might think, okay, I use Facebook. Well, you can't use Facebook if you can't read. Okay. So that's the first thing I would say to somebody is, if, if, you, if you're not physically hampered in that sense, you can read. And so the second thing, therefore, is, okay, if you want to read, now you have to figure out how to find 
the time to read and you have to figure out what to read. How, how do you get going? Well, again, I think what Paul's just saying about reading with others, actually that can be really helpful in reading books, not just in terms of reading scriptures with something alongside it. Um, find others that you can read with. You, you don't have to do it physically at the same time. You could do it separately, but you perhaps meet up for a cup of coffee and talk about, okay, we read this chapter this week. Well, what did we learn? So work with others. That can be very helpful. It can keep you on track as well. But I think if we're serious about reading, then we have to do what it takes to, to get reading. Don't start, if, you, if you're not a big reader of Christian books, don't start with the big heavy books. You're going to struggle. There's no way around that. You will. So start with something that's a bit more accessible. So if you're not a, a great reader of books, the sort of thing you might start with is a little book from Sinclair Ferguson called From the Mouth of God. And From the Mouth of God tells you about Scripture, it tells you how to read scripture, tells you how to study scripture, and it gives you some examples. It's not a big book, easy to read, start with something like that. But you need to find the time, and that means setting aside time to do these things. I think they say it takes something like 30 days to form a habit, um, something like that. So you, you need to form that habit. So it means that you have to set aside a time, you have to Convince yourself you're going to do this, you, you set an alarm on your phone or whatever you do, and when that goes off, I'm going to sit and read. But again, you don't have to read a lot to get going. Read a chapter, read half a chapter, read a couple of pages, whatever you feel comfortable with to get yourself going. Um, just make a start. That's the important thing. You have to make that start. I'm sure Paul could recommend lots of good starting points to, to get you reading in different books. When you're reading, there are all sorts of things that can be a help. I always say to people, you're best reading if you've got a pencil. Have a pencil in your hand. Mark things. Uh, some people hate marking books, but you know, it's really helpful. Um, some people take the 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 book and the, you know, there's always at least one blank page at the front and there's always at least one black, blank page at the back and they'll write a little note in there, something, you know, page 25 found particularly helpful, whatever. Have a pencil in your hand, make notes as you go. Um, don't try to do too much in, in one go. Um, environment, think about the environment you're in. Now, I've, I've read huge numbers of books on the bus going to and from work. But I can do that because I seem to have some ability to switch off everybody else on the bus. Perhaps that's not you. Perhaps that environment isn't helpful to you. Okay, so work out what environment is helpful to you then and get yourself into that environment to help you when you're reading. When you perhaps progress to things that are maybe a little more difficult, uh, in terms of a bit more challenging of a read, so you have to think more about what you're reading. Maybe you're struggling a bit with even perhaps some of the language. Some of the books we publish, for instance, are not in modern-day language because they were written two, three hundred years ago. And perhaps sometimes that's difficult. Read it out loud. Read it out loud. And you'll be surprised how that helps. Uh, one thing it does is it slows you down. You can't read as quickly 
if you're reading out loud. And sometimes just slowing you down can help you to get the meaning better. Again, reading out loud can also make you realize there are emphases here because there's punctuation here. Uh, and again, that can help you to understand the, the message of the book. So read out loud. I, I used to have the experience of sitting reading a book and perhaps reading a book for half an hour. And at the end of half an hour, I would sit there and think, I can't remember anything I've just read. Yeah? Well, two things. One, stand up. Okay? Don't sit down reading if you have that experience. Stand up and maybe even walk around reading your book. And if you need to read it out loud, stand up and walk around and read it out loud. Do all of them. And that can be very helpful in helping you to concentrate, helping you to understand uh, what you're reading. The second thing, which not everybody will perhaps wish to try, um, speed reading. I, I, I never used to believe in speed reading. Um, but I have found on occasions that speed reading actually is really helpful. Um, in my past life, I did a speed reading course with, that was run by Boeing aircraft. And um, it was really helpful. And sometimes what's happening is, as you read, you're reading at your pace. And you're not really taking it in. And that's the, you know, half an hour later, I can't remember anything I've read. When you speed read, you force the pace of the reading. And when you do that, it can be really helpful for memory retention. So if, if you're not familiar with speed reading techniques, one of the most common speed reading techniques is the finger. And you may feel really silly doing this on the bus with lots of people around you, but you use your finger and you literally force the speed of reading by tracing the lines. It makes you read and it makes you concentrate. Um, so another, another option for you. Um, but it's getting the environment right, looking at things like reading out loud, standing up, moving around. Uh, those sorts of things can be a help. Thank you, John. Two uh, notices for you as it relates to the discipline of reading. We have a bookstore. Uh, I'm sure many of you do know that. Many folks that are new to our church perhaps don't know this. It's not in this building. It's in our church offices just across the way. You walk past them every Sunday that you come here. There is a bookstore in there, and it's operational, and I would encourage you to go there tonight. I'd encourage you to regularly, when you come here on the Lord's Day, just walk across and have a look at the titles in there. I'm going to set a challenge for you. Our goal as the elders is to keep building that bookstore. I'm going to keep putting more books in there, and my challenge to you is that you beat us in emptying it. So you keep buying books, we're going to keep filling it up, and it's going to be full of resources that we know to be good and helpful for the Christian life. And then a second notice, Banner have been very, very generous in gifting us uh, a copy or many copies of a book this evening. The title is You Must Read. I'm not too sure what that's about, John. <laughs> that's a very emphatic title, You Must Read. Subtitle, Books That Have Shaped Our Lives. So thank you to Banner. There are many copies of this book in the lobby for you this evening. Please do take a copy. And if you're not a reader, this could be a good place to get started. It's interesting. It's a series of contributors who have 
written a short chapter on a book that they have found particularly helpful, all, all banner books, correct? Maybe? Okay. Um, and that could be a, a fun way to get started in the discipline of reading. John, I'd like to ask you to uh, pray just to wrap up our time together in just a minute. Before that, can we show our appreciation to John for giving us his time? Now, Lord and Heavenly Father, we are conscious that we are sinners before a holy God, a God who cannot look on sin, and we are conscious of our unworthiness. But Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you that through Christ we can be made right with you. And so we can come into your presence as we are doing tonight. And we come into your presence as your children. Those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. Those who have been washed clean. And as you look upon us, you don't see our sinfulness, but you see the righteousness of Christ. And we thank you for your word, because it is your word that reveals these things to us. And we pray, Lord, you would give us a greater desire to know more of you. You would give us a greater desire to know more of the scriptures that teach us of you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for those who are involved in producing literature that can be helpful to us. We thank you for the faithful men of old who uh, wrote things that we can read today and benefit from. We thank you, too, for those who are authors today who are producing uh, God-honoring material that we can read and we can benefit from. And we pray that you would help each one of us to be those that engage our mind within our Christian faith, uh, that are readers, and not just readers, because we can read in an academic way, but more than that, readers who put into practice the things that we learn as we read the scriptures and as we read other books that can help us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be uh, with us as we uh, exercise uh, our faculties in this way. We thank you that we can read of the way you have worked in days gone by. Uh, we can read Christian history. We can read biography. And we know that you are the same God. And the things that you have done in the past, you can do today. Uh, and we sometimes look around us and see all sorts of things happening that make us perhaps despair. And yet we know that in days gone by, you have done works, mighty works, and we can have uh, a confidence that you are the same God and therefore you are able to do things today. Uh, you can save people. Uh, you do save people. Uh, and you bring people to repentance and faith in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Spirit upon us. Uh, give us new sights of Christ our Savior. Give us new insights into the work that he did. Uh, and most unworthy as we are, we can praise you for our Savior. We can praise you that you are doing a work in us. Those of us who are here, who know you, uh, who know you as our Father, you are doing a work in us day by day, sanctifying us and, and preparing us for that day when we will leave this place and come to our home, of eternal home in heaven. Lord, we pray that you would part us with your blessing now. Uh, we thank you for being able to gather this Lord's day, uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would go uh, 
ahead of us into this coming week and be with us in all the different responsibilities that we may have, that we would do them all in a way that is glorifying to you and brings glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray.